Luke chapter 4, we're going to continue our series in the book of Luke. You just heard it read to you on the screen. We'll revisit it as we go through tonight's teaching. I teach a Friday morning Bible study, and we are studying through the book of Philippians. And uh, this past week, we studied the section in Philippians where Paul was addressing the church at Philippi, telling them that there were among them, hear me, that there were among them believers, people who called themselves believers, but who by their conduct and the way they lived showed themselves to be enemies of the cross. That grieved me. Do, do you know that it's possible to call yourself a believer, but by your conduct, by the way you're living, testify to others that you're an enemy of the cross? You say, well, Rhea, how does that work? I, I, I become an enemy of the cross when I choose to do things my way. When I refuse to take up my own cross and crucify my flesh and with its passions and its desires, when, when I refuse to deny myself and follow God's will and instead do things my way. I become an enemy of the cross when I live to fulfill my, my lusts and my fleshly desires. And Paul had a solution for, for the people, for the people he was writing to, to, to his readers. And he said, here is the solution to not live as an enemy of the cross. Imitate Jesus. And then he said, if you can't imitate Jesus, imitate me. Because I'm so confident, this is Paul speaking, I'm so confident that I am following the example of Jesus so perfectly that you can just follow me. Oh, I want that in my life. He said, uh, there should be wholehearted believers who are passionately following God's will and they're living a life so that you can imitate them. Uh, uh, he's saying that is the solution. But don't live as an enemy of the cross. Follow the example of Christ. You, you see, Maria, that's really great, but Jesus was God incarnate. <laughs> of course he had a good example. He, he was God. But the Bible says that, that he, he knew exactly how it felt to be human. That is Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 2.17 says he had to be make, made like us, like humans. He was fully man, but he was fully God. I, I don't understand it, but Philippians says that he, he laid aside his, his divine prerogatives, that he chose not to act in those ways. He was a man just like us tempted in every way that we get tempted, and yet he was without sin. He came and he lived and walked this earth and showing us, demonstrating to us that it's possible to live a sinless life, fully relying on, trusting in, yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did it as a man like us. And he left us an example, Scripture says, to follow. Paul says, make this your lifestyle. It's a command to imitate Jesus. Make it your habit to live like he lived. I wonder how many of us are even attempting to do that. 
We talked about John the Baptist last week and, and ended just before Jesus came to be baptized by him. Look over at Luke 3, 21. I just want you to see a few things in, in, in the scripture. So Luke 3, 21, you will see that, that the scripture says that, that Luke says just before Jesus began his ministry, he was baptized by John and he went under the water and when he came up, the spirit descended on him like a dove. And then in Luke 4, 1 and 2, we, we studied two weeks ago that Jesus being filled by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we learned that his temptation by the devil, he was able to defeat the devil because he leaned on and relied on the Holy Spirit to, to guide him and direct him. And then tonight, we will read in verse 14 of chapter 4. After the temptation of Jesus, it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him started to travel because he did amazing things and people glorified him. It was because he returned in the power of the Spirit. We'll see in tonight's passage in, in Luke 4, 18 that Jesus himself said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me. Jesus understood everything he did on earth, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. Leaning on, relying on the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus had to do that, how much more do you and I? Peter summarized Jesus' entire ministry. It's in your, your notes in, in Acts 10.38 where he wrote and he said, You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism with John proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. And here it is. How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how empowered by the Holy Spirit he went about doing good and healing all who were impressed, uh, oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Can I tell you, if you want to go about doing good, you cannot do it in your own strength. Your flesh will, will oppose that. You have to do it empowered by the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did. Jesus came to prove to us that it can be done. And then he instructs us to follow his example. You and I as believers have that Holy Spirit living within us. We just have to make a choice to yield to it daily. Every day, moment by moment, we come to a crossroads in life where we can either yield to the Holy Spirit, to God's way of doing things, or we can yield to our flesh. And our flesh likes attention. Can I just tell you, it, the, the flesh and its passions and its desires feel good. It sounds good. It's what the world is doing. And every day, moment by moment, we have a choice. Will we live God's way or will we live the way of the flesh? Ephesians 5, 18 on your list and the Amplified says, Do not get drunk with wine for that is wickedness, corruption, and stupidity, but be filled with the Holy Spirit and constantly 
guided by him. We are instructed to be ye filled. That word is a continuous, ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what empowers us to walk out the walk that Christ has called us to do. That's what empowers us to act like him, to be like him, to look like him. But I'm telling you, my mom used to say to me, Rhea, you have to position yourself under the spout where the glory comes out. We want to position ourselves in the world. We want to position ourselves with, with people who aren't living. They're living as enemies of the cross. And, and yet we want to, to testify of the power of God. It's got to be because we position ourselves. I'm up every morning positioning myself under the spout where the glory comes out, plugging in. It's like a lamp. If it's not plugged into the power source, it just looks good, but it doesn't serve its purpose. And I'm telling you that if we don't get to the place where we plug into the Lord every morning, spending time with him, connecting with him throughout the day, we will have no power in our life. The power comes from his presence, from his word, from yielding to his Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said, you are going to do even greater things than I did. You're not limited to just doing the things that I've done. Scripture says that we will do even greater things because he went to be with the Father and he left his Holy Spirit behind for us. Philippians 2.13 says we don't labor with all our strength. We labor uh, with, with his power, which, which so powerfully works within us. That's why Paul called us to imitate him. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says walk and live habitually in the Holy Spirit, responsive to and controlled and guided by the Spirit. Then you will certainly not gratify the cravings and the desires of the flesh. But we have to choose to walk and live habitually in the Holy Spirit, responsive to and controlled by and guided by Him. We have to be intentional about that, purposeful about that. 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever, I get this, I love this. Of all the scriptures that I put on that paper for you, this is the one I love the most. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he lives in Christ, that is, whoever says that he has accepted him as God and Savior, ought as moral obligation to walk and conduct himself just as, in the same manner as, he walked and conducted himself. Incidentally, that's in the present tense. It means make it your lifestyle to live and walk as Jesus did. Remember when the, what would Jesus do bracelets were so popular? <laughs> and that's what this is talking about. What would Jesus do? Stop in every situation and ask yourself, how would Jesus respond? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus react in this situation? And we see it tonight in our passage that Jesus made it his habit to live sensitive to, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4. Chapter 4 says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout the surrounding regions. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He returned in the power of the Spirit. The success of our Savior was because he preached and moved by the power of the Spirit. And our success in the Christian walk is going to be for the same reason. I want that. 
look at this passage a little closer tonight. We're going to see that, that Jesus, he returned in that power of the Spirit, and his life and his ministry reflected it. And, and, and it's interesting to me that Luke does not give us too many details about this portion of Jesus' ministry in the Galilee. I want to know more because commentators say that this could have been about a year. There might have been about a year from the time of Jesus coming out from the temptation to the time he was in Nazareth in the synagogue. That a year probably passed there. And all we have is one little paragraph about how people were amazed by him and they glorified him and he walked in power. I want more details, Luke. But he only gave me a paragraph. We know that Jesus was well received. He probably had a bit of celebrity status, commentators say. He was glorified by all. And then he moved to Nazareth, his hometown, and that's where verse 16 picks up. Remember, he was born, hey, his, Nazareth was his hometown. Nazareth was, was southwest of the Sea of Galilee. It was a very small community. I was shocked to learn this. Maybe some of you already know this. I did not. That, that the time that Jesus lived in Nazareth, there would have only been between 100 and 150 people there. That's how small that town was. I, I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania. I, I know small towns, can I tell you. Everybody knows everything. They're down in your business. And, and so everybody knew Jesus. You can't have only 100 to 150 people and people not know Jesus and not know about him. So keep that in your mind. The village was located north of Jerusalem, well beyond Samaria, Samaria. One commentator writes, it was the last place on earth one would expect anything interesting to happen. Calling someone a Nazarene would have been like referring to them as a bumpkin or a hillbilly. In fact, you'll remember when Nathaniel said, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? He assumed that Nazareth couldn't produce much of worth and certainly not the Messiah. And so that's why what Jesus is going to do is really important. I'm sure the people of Nazareth, he was back home in Nazareth and he was going to preach in their synagogue. And I'm sure they were excited because here is this man of celebrity status now from their little tiny hometown. And they, they probably couldn't wait to see what he was going to do. In fact, we see in this passage where they say, what you did in Capernaum, do here. We won't see that hotsy totsy stuff. You see, we know you. And, and you're just, you, you were raised here. We, your mama changed your diapers here. Well, we know all about you, Jesus. You, you certainly, whatever you're doing in Capernaum and Galilee that made you so hot, see, don't you do it here. Because you're just Joseph's son. Sometimes that's how we look at Jesus, isn't it? I got you figured out, Jesus. I got you in my nice little religious box, Jesus. Could you just stay in that box? Because you know that whacked out Rhea talks about miracles and signs and wonders and your power and oh, Jesus, could you could you just stay in your little box? Because I got you figured out and that's how you act and that's how you move and certainly Jesus, <laughs> you, you don't do other things, do you? So Jesus 
stands up in the synagogue, and I want you to see some things there. This is so powerful to me. I want to park here. I don't even want to go any further because this was so powerful to me this week. You see, the synagogue was the center of the religious life in Palestine. You need to know that. It's where people met to worship. It's where the teaching took place. And, and the scripture that we're reading tonight says that Jesus went into Nazareth, and he immediately went to the synagogue. Look at this, and in verse 16 it says, and as his custom was, he went up into the synagogue on the Sabbath. If you miss everything else I say tonight, don't miss this. I'm here to tell you that COVID has done a disservice to the church. We've gotten out of the custom of going to church. We've gotten out of the habit of going to church. We have allowed a virus to dictate to us something other than the word of God dictates. I'm sorry if that's stepping on anybody's toes, but I'm going to say it like it is. Clark says to worship God publicly is the duty of every man, and no man can be guiltless who neglects it. Scripture commands, it doesn't suggest that we are not to forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. Let me read it to you in another translation. This is not the time to pull away and neglect meeting together as some have formed the habit of doing. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate the day dawning. Do you know what the day dawning is? Does anybody know? Somebody tell me what the day dawning is. The return of Christ. As the day is dawning, I'm telling you the day is drawing near. Whether you like to hear that or not, I'm telling you, every prophecy has been fulfilled. He could return at any moment. I know that that hurts some of your religious ears, but I'm telling you, it is a fact, Jack. And the day is getting ready to dawn. And the Bible says, <laughs> we need to be more eager, look at that, eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate that day dawning. We should come together even more frequently. But in yet... <laughs> Some of us have gotten out of the habit of meeting together. We, we discount it. We say it's no big deal. God understands I'm watching from home. I'm preaching to you the word of God. Not Rhea's testimony. I'm preaching to you directly from the word of God. Let us not forsake the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Jesus, this was his habit. It was his custom. Here's what I want you to know. Can you imagine Jesus? Like, Jesus. When, when Stuart Briscoe comes to hear me preach, oh my goodness, I'm like, oh, Stuart's in the pulpit, in the, in the pew listening to me preach. I'm worrying about every word I'm going to say. Can you imagine Jesus coming into a synagogue? Can, can, can you imagine that rabbi? Can you imagine how many bad sermons he heard? Can, can you imagine how many times he sat in the, the seat thinking, mm, that's not really what that scripture meant? Can, can you imagine how many, thought, how many religious, super spiritual, arrogant, self-righteous rabbis he had to listen to knowing what was in a man? 
And yet, Scripture says, it was his habit. It was his custom. He didn't stop going to synagogue just because it wasn't convenient for him. How many times have I heard this? I don't know if I like that preacher. Kind of boring. That worship. <laughs> they really need to find a better worship leader. I didn't like it. They sang way too many hymns. Or they didn't sing enough hymns. We find every excuse. But see, I don't read it in Scripture. I know it's stepping on toes, and I'm sorry. But, but this is not the time to pull away and neglect meeting together, as some have formed the habit of doing. Rather, we should come together even more frequently because the day is getting ready to dawn. The day is getting ready to dawn. Here is the one person on the face of the earth who doesn't need to be at church. And yet it was his custom. It was his habit. You say, well, Rhea, if I could just find a church. My father-in-law always says, if you ever find a perfect church, don't attend there. Because you'll ruin it. It was his habit. To Jesus, the synagogue, the church, if you will, represented the authority of God in that town. And he was not going to forsake meeting together. When the doors were open, he was there. It was his custom. It was his priority. And if it needed to be a priority for Jesus, how much more does it need to be a priority for us? So he was in the synagogue, and, and verse 17 says, they handed him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. I, I love that. We don't know if Jesus asked for a scroll or if they just handed him to it. Because we know they, they would always read the prophets. And so we don't know if they just handed him the prophet Isaiah or if he asked for that one. And he immediately opened it to what we know as Isaiah 61. Now, now there weren't chapters and, and, and verses in, in what, re, what Jesus was reading, but... Uh, Jesus immediately unrolled the scroll to that section. That tells me that Jesus was familiar with the scripture because uh, he knew where to turn. He had intimate knowledge of it. And can I tell you again, we're called to imitate his example. He opened the book and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is the first recorded message of Jesus. The first preach, if you will. And he chose to read what was known as a messianic prophecy. Everyone in the room would have been familiar with it. Isaiah had prophesied it over 700 years prior. And it was a prophecy about the coming Messiah. It spoke of five areas of healing that the Messiah would bring to his people. Hear this. Five areas of healing. And scripture says, after Jesus had finished reading it, he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. 
In, in Bible times, a rabbi would stand to read the scripture and then they would sit down to teach. Today, our, our preachers stand in the pulpit to preach, but, but at that time, rabbis would sit to teach. And, and the Bible says that the eyes of all, oh, they were on him. They were fixed on him. Here was this little boy from Nazareth who they had saw, uh, you know, grow up in their town and they were anxious to see what he would say. And then in verse 21, he, pre he preaches the shortest sermon on record. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine? Say what? A little boy from Nazareth. You, you, do you know? Maybe we should instruct you. That is a messianic prophecy, Jesus. Certainly, you can't mean you are. Ah. Little boy from Nazareth who we saw grow up in this town where nothing good comes from, <laughs> you're telling us you're the Messiah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. He was saying he was the one who came to bring salvation and deliverance. He was the one who came to set the people free. He said, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It was a sense of immediacy. It was his mission statement. He was beginning his ministry and, and he's saying, this is what I came to do. This is my mission. And let me just tell you what, it's still his mission today. It's still his mission today. They said to one another, isn't this Joseph's son? And then they were like, you know, do, and, do, do hear what you did and prove it. Prove it. Jesus knew that there was no faith in the room. In fact, I think it was, well, Mark and Matthew both say that he did not do many miracles in that area because of their unbelief. I was reading a scripture this week. I think it was actually last week I shared it with you in Hebrews where it says, search your heart. Let me read it to you. It tells us that we should search our hearts every day. And make sure that none of us have, an, have evil or unbelief hiding within us. Because it will lead us astray and make us unresponsive to the living God. Search your hearts and, and see if there's any evil hiding within you. It'll hide. The, the Bible says we're deceived by the pride of our heart. I like to think I'm all that in a bag of potato chips and that I'm super spiritual. But I'm just telling you that, that the Bible tells me that I can have unbelief hiding in my heart. I can have evil. I think I'm a nice person. I think I'm kind and loving. But here's what the Bible tells me. I should be searching my heart every day because evil can hide within me. Unbelief can hide within me. I have a responsibility to be asking the Lord, sitting before the Lord. I say to him almost, almost daily, search my heart and see if there's any, uh, any wicked way in me. Unbelief. Jesus knew that there was unbelief in that town and he couldn't do anything in it because of the unbelief. He waits for faith. I have a, a friend who's a pastor in Nashville. Uh, we, we love them. We, we do, we go there often and their son who I just think the world of sweetest guy um, he's a pastor on staff with them and uh, his name is Joshua and um, we met him what a year a year ago such a sweet tender guy and we got word last week that he had a brain aneurysm and and he was uh, he's 
he's really clinically brain dead. He's in the hospital on life support. And, and his family, they're standing believing. They're believing. They're saying, I, I'm not going to be moved by what I see in the natural. We are believing that he is going to rise again. We are believing that new life is coming back into him. We are not believing what we see. And the world would look at that and say, whacked out. The world would look at that and say, believe the doctor's report. And I said to Leslie, I am not going to be surprised if he walks out of that hospital. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And you see, what we've done, I, I told Leslie today, the word treaty was on my heart all day. I think sometimes that we've come into a treaty, a peace treaty with Satan. Where we've said, I won't rock your world too much. I'll come into agreement with you in this area because everybody's going to think I'm totally whacked out if I come into agreement with God too much. Without faith, total trust in God and in his word, it is impossible to please God. And what we've done and called it, you know, good Christianity is we have looked in the natural and believed the natural, and we have said, God, you can't possibly mean that. And so we've come into agreement with the enemy in a peace treaty instead of coming into agreement with God. God waits for faith. He waits for us to say, I don't understand it. I can't even picture it. But I'm going to agree with you here. I'm going to agree with you. Many of you have heard me tell the story of our son, um, Dave's oldest son, uh, he was an alcoholic. Uh, he had developed cirrhosis of the liver. I if you could have seen him, his belly, I have a picture of him that he looks like he was nine months pregnant. His uh, stomach was so full of uh, fluid from, from his liver being in such bad shape. The doctors told us that he had cut his life in half that he, if he ever took a drink again, he would die immediately. He could not leave the house. He couldn't go on vacation with us because he could not leave his alcohol. He had to have a glass of whiskey beside him at all times. He was 30 years old. And I said, this is how I started. Oh, Lord, can you please heal him? Please, Lord, if it's your will, can you just please heal him? Can you deliver him, Lord? Can you just give us a glimpse of your word? That's how I prayed. And then something clicked in my head. And I said, mm-mm. Not on my watch. My sons will be taught by the Lord. And great will my children's peace be. The offspring of the righteous are blessed, and they are mighty in the land. They're not alcoholics. They are mighty in the land, and my son will be mighty in the land. And I, oh, remember that song? Maybe you didn't sing it. When I was a little girl growing up, we sang the song, I went into the enemy's camp, and I took back what he stole from me. Can I tell you? I got a revelation of the Lord. And I started to realize I was coming. I'd made a peace treaty with the devil where I was like, okay, you got my son. Uh -uh. I got this revelation that the enemy had stolen from me one time too much. And I went into the enemy's camp 
and I took back what he stole from me. That was not his. He stole it from me. And I went into his camp, and I plundered. Can I tell you? I plundered, and I didn't plunder because I prayed like, oh, Lord. I plundered because I came into agreement with the Lord. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I began to say, no weapon formed against my family is going to prosper. That that's my inheritance in you. And I call an end to this weapon that's been formed against Danny in the name of Jesus. And I release the power of God over his life. I thank you that conviction is coming. I thank you that deliverance is coming. I thank you. I thank you for the power of God at work in his life. He called me one night and he's like, Rhea, I think I saw a demon in my room. And I said, oh, Danny, let me tell you what to do with that. Then a few months later, he called us and he said, I think I'm going to go to Bible college. And I almost choked, seriously. Uh, I talk about somebody who was praying in faith but wasn't looking in faith. I, I was like, Danny, do, do you know, I'm pretty sure you cannot drink in Bible college. I'm pretty sure that that's a rule. He went to Bible college. He graduated from Bible college. He says to this day, he testified, he gave, he gave a testimony one time in Bible study, and he said he heard the audible voice of the Lord. Remember, the doctors said that he had cut his life in half and that if he ever took another drink, he would die. He had cirrhosis of the liver so badly that they said he'd have to be under the care of a liver doctor the rest of his life. He said he was sitting in his room, and he had a glass of whiskey in his hand, and he heard the Lord say, Danny, you don't have to do that. And he said, I put the glass away, and he said he never had another drink from that day forward. Can I tell you? He went to the liver doctor one time, one time to get discharged that he never had to go back again. I'm telling you, God waits for faith. Where did all that come from? I am so far off of my notes. I have no idea. Unbelief. There was no belief in that town, and I believe. Can I <laughs> tell you, Lord? I don't often do that. I'm sorry. So Jesus says, I've been anointed. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me. Can I tell you that that word anointed means to rub or, or to apply oil to? Prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament were anointed. They were set apart, consecrated for the task that they had been called to. And the Bible says that Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he's anointed me. The word Christ... In the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the word for Messiah. The word Messiah means the anointed one. He was set apart to do the task that he had proclaimed in the synagogue that day. There were five areas of healing that the Messiah would bring to his people. Look at him. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, the good news to the poor to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, to recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty to those who are oppressed. David Gusick, one of my favorite commentators, says that, that he came addressing the sin issue in our life. To preach the gospel to the poor, sin impoverishes. To heal the brokenhearted, sin breaks hearts. To proclaim liberty to the captive, sin makes people captive and enslaves them. Recovery of sight to the blind, sin blinds us. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, sin oppresses its victims. Jesus said, I have come. The purpose 
for me coming into your life and mine was to preach good news to the poor. What is the poor? He's not talking about financially poor. In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, Blessed, happy, prosperous, to be envied are the poor in spirit. Those who see that they have nothing to give, those who are spiritually bankrupt, who see their need for a Savior, who understands there's nothing they can do to deliver themselves. Only Jesus can do that. Mary and Joseph were told by the angel of the Lord, you're going to have a son and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save, he'll deliver, he'll set his people free, he'll make them prosperous and whole again, his people from their sin. Do you understand that's why Jesus came? But he waits for us to understand that, that we're poor, to come to a place of spiritual bankruptcy where we realize that we are destitute of ourselves. We can't help ourselves. We can't deliver ourselves. We can't meet our own needs. He came to heal the brokenhearted. That word heal means to make whole, to cure. The brokenhearted, that, that means to break into pieces, to shatter into pieces to crush. There's some of you sitting here tonight who have been crushed because of sin, whether it's your sin or sin against you. You've been shattered because of it. It means to lose one's strength. Some of you are sitting here tonight so brokenhearted, so affected because of your sin choices or choices of somebody sinning against you, and it's left you brokenhearted. Can I tell you that my Jesus came to bind up, to heal your broken heart? Rick Runner says, this depicts a person who's been shattered or fractured in life. The word healed means to set free from the detrimental effects of a fractured life. It speaks of release from the destructive effects of brokenness. In other words, Renner says, although there's every reason to experience and feel brokenness, the anointing that's on Jesus is more than enough to release you from its adverse effects. Can I tell you, I don't know what's broken you in your life. Because this word brokenhearted, the heart is your mind, your will, your emotions. Can I tell you, sin against you can get buried up here in your mind. It can play tricks on your mind. It can get deep in your emotions and make you do things you wish you had never done. It can affect you greatly. It can bring anxiety. It can bring depression. It can bring despair. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus, my Jesus, came to heal your broken heart. You don't have to walk affected by that thing anymore. You say, well, Rhea, you don't know what I've been through. Trust me, I have some idea. I know what I've been through. And I promise you, there is nothing that you've had to endure. There's nothing that you're presently enduring that seems to be breaking you that Jesus didn't come to fix. The Bible says he came to destroy the works of the devil. Can I tell you, you have an enemy in your life. The devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is out to destroy you. And he sets the right people in your path at the right time with the right things to destroy you. To break your heart, to break your mind, to break your emotions down. That's what he wants. He wants you to be crippled and paralyzed with sin and with sin's effects. And my Jesus came so that you didn't have to. He wants to make you whole. He wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to walk in liberty and freedom. And he who the sun sets free is free indeed. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? 
He says he came to bind. That word bind, it's such an interesting word. It means to apply a relieving bandage to your heart wounds. Oh, I love it. He came to proclaim liberty for the captives. John, uh, Jesus says in John 8, 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Can I tell you that sin brings captivity? It might be tasty. Can I tell you, I understand this. You don't have a past like I have. The, the people say to me, why, why do you preach the way you preach? Because I was once lost, but now I'm found. Jesus found me. And he picked me up out of the muck and the mire, and he put my feet on solid ground. There is very little that you could come up to me and say, Rhea, I did this, that I couldn't say. I've been there, done that. But God is good. I preach the way I preach so that I can keep one person from making the same mistakes that I made. I understand what captivity feels like. I know what it's like to be in a prison of your own making, to have sinned so much that you're held captive by those choices. And I know what it's like to be set free. He came to proclaim liberty. We become captive to sin, captive to the flesh. That word captive is really where what, what our, our term today for that is addicted. And some of you are here tonight and you're captive to the flesh. You're addicted to, to, to sinful desires. Jesus wants to set you free. But you have to do the first thing first. You have to admit that you're poor. You have to get to the place where you understand you can't fix yourself, that you need somebody bigger than you to do it. Can I tell you about my Jesus? That word captive means prisoner of war. Can I just tell you that there is a difference between being a captive and a prisoner? Do you understand that? A captive is someone who's taking, taken against their will. A prisoner is someone who's done something to deserve it. They're in prison because they deserve it. Are, are you with me? So, so this is Jesus. He's covering both bases here. He's saying whether you're captive because somebody did something against you. They, they sinned against you. They hurt you deeply. And you are captive to unforgiveness, to bitterness, to hatred, to anger. Or whether you're a prisoner of your own making. Maybe you made a choice to go somewhere, to do something, to think something. And now you find yourself a prisoner to it. It doesn't matter. My Jesus is able to deliver you. He is able to deliver you. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? You see, you say you believe in God. But my question for you tonight is, do you believe God? Do you believe that he is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine? Do you believe that greater is he that's in you than he that's in this world? Do you believe that, that you can go into the enemy's camp and take back what he stole from you? Do you believe it? He came to set at liberty, the captives. He came to recover the sight of the blind. Oh, I love this because it's not a physical blindness, although we see so many scriptures where Jesus healed physical blindness. He's talking about a spiritual blindness here. I, I have on your list of scriptures, there's a scripture that said, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. If you're sitting here tonight, oh, this is going to hurt. If you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, oh, she is so into this Bible, giving us a whole list of scriptures. 
Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. If you don't believe, it is not because you made a choice. It is because you're under the influence of an enemy who has blinded the eyes, your eyes, to keep you from seeing. That scripture says, Satan, who is the God of this world, is minded, blinded the eyes of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. The good news is that there's a Savior who wants to deliver and set free. The mission of Jesus was to remove that spiritual blindness. The spiritual blindness causes people to be blind to spiritual truth. Some people are even incapable of comprehending truth. One commentator said, Jesus used this word figuratively uh, to, to reference those who had religion but no relationship with God. This applies, he says, to many who are in churches today who profess religion but tragically don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus says there are people who see but do not see. I teach this Friday morning study, and it's an in-depth study, and we dig deep into Scripture. And I always say to people, you know, people will come in, and they'll, 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 only, they'll only be there a Friday or two, and then they'll leave, and they'll just say, I don't understand. The Bible says that the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned, and the natural man cannot understand them. And so I say to people, when you come to study, you come with your spirit man sharp. You come sensitive to his spirit saying, Lord, I need you to open up my eyes to see what I'm not seeing. I don't want to see and not see. I want to see truth, Lord God. I want to be able to comprehend your word. Jesus came to give sight to the blind. He says he came to set free those who are oppressed. That word oppressed literally means to shatter or to break into pieces. Philip Ryken says oppressed people are people who are crushed in spirit, who are shattered by the hard experiences of life. When Jesus spoke about oppression, he was speaking of anyone dominated by the powerful forces of evil. People who have suffered verbal, emotional, or physical abuse. Oppression is the biblical category for what people would call abuse today. It describes anyone who's under spiritual oppression as the people who Jesus freed from demons and people who are overwhelmed with trouble, downtrodden, those broken by calamity or crushed by the circumstances of life to the point where they see no way of escape. If that's you tonight, can I tell you, my Jesus came to heal you. You don't have to stay in that place of brokenness, in that place of despair. One more moment. You say, well, Rhea, do you really believe this? I absolutely, 100% believe it. Jesus himself said it. And if God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. Pastor Jack Hayford, I read something that he wrote this week, and I really liked it. It says, you cannot disciple a demon, and you can't cast out the flesh. You can't disciple a demon, and you can't cast out the flesh. 
So freedom, what liberty, liberty that Jesus is talking about here, comes with both deliverance and discipleship. You're here on Monday night. I believe that my ministry is to disciple people. I really believe that I make followers. I don't just make fans. I make followers. I make people who are imitating Jesus. That is what I know my mission is about in life. But I'm telling you, you cannot disciple a demon. Sometimes there has to be deliverance. We, we minister to guys who have sex addictions. Dave and I do, and, and, and there's only so far you can take them. We can train them. We can teach them about the addiction. We can help them get set free. We can disciple them in the gospel, but there has to come a time where I get my hands on them, and I begin to, 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 to come against the demon that they've opened themselves up to. Deliverance is necessary in that case. You can't disciple a demon. The Bible says, don't give place to the devil. You've heard me say this a million times. That word place is topos. It's where we get our word topography. It means a geographical location. He's saying, don't you give the devil a place to act in your life. You say, well, Christians can't be possessed. No, they can't, but you can choose to surrender an area of your life to give him influence. Jesus came to deliver and set free. He said, I came to preach an acceptable year of the Lord's favor. And I just love this. The year of the Lord's favor is a reference to Jubilee. I don't know if you know this. I did not know this. I learned something so fascinating this week. that, that uh, Y'all know the Jubilee, right? The law of Moses demanded that every 50 years, that the 50 year well, it was a year of Jubilee. And it was designed to be a time when slaves were released, that debts were canceled, and that land that had been, you know, given up or, or, or taken over would be returned back to its rightful owner, okay? Y'all know that, right? Here's what I didn't know. I did not know that the, the Jewish people never, not once, celebrated Jubilee. I did not know that. I just assumed that every 50 years, they had it. So by the time that the Israelites went to the promised land, Lord, help me get this right, and the time that Isaiah wrote this prophecy about the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, there would have been something like 14 Jubilees that should have been celebrated. But they never saw it one time. They waited, hear this, for the trumpet to sound and announce a Jubilee. Mm, some of you are already there with me. When the Lord returns, what's going to happen? The trumpet of the Lord will sound, and he's saying, I'm bringing a year of the Lord's favor where people are set free, where people's broken hearts are healed, where people are no longer captive to sin. Oh, I'm just telling you, the trumpet is going to sound, and we are going to be living jubilee. I love it so much, I can't even tell you. Jesus was saying, I am declaring a year of jubilee. I'm declaring that your sin debt is canceled. I'm declaring that what the enemy stole from you needs to be returned. I'm declaring that your slaves, oh, I, I told Dave I'm going to preach. We're doing a, an intensive, I won't even tell you. I won't go there because it's so good. I, I'll save it. But, but, but I'm, he's declaring that. He said uh, uh, it's an acceptable year of the Lord's favor. Can I just tell you real quickly before we close, that is not where Isaiah stopped. Do you know where Isaiah stopped? If you flip over to Isaiah 61, Isaiah doesn't stop with an acceptable year of the Lord's favor. What does he say? 
and the day of vengeance of our Lord. I love that Jesus didn't include that. Do you know why he didn't include it? Because what he ushered in was a time of grace, a time of mercy. Today is the day of salvation. Today is when your sin debt can be canceled. Today is when you can be set free and released from all that's oppressing and all that's weighing you down. This is a time of great grace. But I'm telling you, if you turn over to that last scripture on your list, the second Thessalonians, the day is coming when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance, Jesus, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who, somebody read it, do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. I so want to water that down for you. I so want that to not be a scripture that's in the Bible. But I can't be. Somebody was praying tonight in the prayer room and they said they kept hearing the scripture. How will they know unless somebody tells them? I'm telling you, this is a time of great grace where he's knocking at the door of your life, where he's saying, this is all available to you in me. You can have forgiveness from sin. You can have freedom from guilt and condemnation. You can have wholeness. You can be at a time of great prosperity. Just admit you're poor. Admit your need of a Savior and turn your life over to me. But the day is coming, church, when he will appear in the sky and those who do not know him, who have not made him their Lord and Savior. The day of vengeance is coming to those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wish I could change it. I wish I had Dave's gift. Dave is, if you don't know this man, he's the most tender, sweet shepherd you will ever meet in your whole life. He is this kind of man. Let's just walk together. Jesus loves you. God is good. You're loved. And then his prophet wife who gets a hold of a scripture, and I, I'm like a dog with a bone. i got to get it out there. i got to make sure people know this. We're a great team because of that. But I'm here to tell you, I wish that I could tone it down just a bit for you, but, but it's like neon lights blinking off and on for me, that it's like God say, tell them this, tell them this, tell them this, tell them this. Today of mercy and grace, please respond. Please respond to his mercy and his grace. Please make a decision to sell out and follow him hard. Please make a decision to not just be a fan, but to be a follower. To not just be a follower, but to be an imitator. Let's come. You've seen me do this. So in closing, let me just close with this. I, I walked you through all of those scriptures that said, this is how you're not an enemy of the cross, you imitate Jesus. If I said to Les, follow me, Leslie, and then I said, now imitate me, Les, what's the difference? Following looks a whole lot different than imitating, doesn't it? Some of you are fans. You just, you know, show up when it's convenient, when it's convenient for you. Hi, Jesus. I'm a fan. You're cool. <laughs> oh, you're going to be really cool if you keep me from hell. Yay, Jesus then live like hell all week. Some of you are followers. You follow. 
But he's calling us to imitate, to be like him, to act like him, to love like him, to forgive like him, to be merciful like him, to be compassionate like him, to obey like him. And we do that by surrendering to the Holy Spirit's work in our life. I'm going to ask Megan to come and close us out um, with a song. I just want to thank you so much for coming. I, I thank you. I'm, I'm mindful. I, I know that the word I preach is hard, and I'm, I'm, I'm really mindful. But, but I, I just want you to know, never in a million years do I preach to condemn. The Spirit convicts and leads to life. But it's never to leave you condemned. Peter, um, Jesus is preaching, and there's 5,000 people there. Everybody loves him. And then he says something super-duper hard. <laughs> and the Bible says they all begin to leave. And everybody leaves him. And his disciples are there, and he, he looks at him, and he says, Do you want to leave too? Because I'm aware that what I just said was hard. So do you want to leave too? And Peter looks at him and he says, where would we go? I might not like, here's my Rhea's translation. I might not like what you just said, Jesus. It might not have been easy to hear, Jesus. But here's what I've learned. I've learned that what you speak is truth. And that only you, Jesus, have the words that lead me to life. And so I'll just hang around as hard as it was to hear. Can I tell you, his words bring life. They bring life. They're the way to life. So, Father, I pray for every man and woman in this room tonight. I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you that it does bring life. I thank you, Father, that you are who you say you are and that you'll do what you say you can do. And, Lord God, you came to set captives free. I pray that tonight you would set some captives free in this place. Lord, those who are captive to, to sin, to addiction, to unforgiveness, to hatred, Lord, set them free. That you would release, Lord, people who are in a prison, a prison of pain, a prison of hopelessness, a prison of depression and despair. Set them free tonight, Lord. Father, for those who are brokenhearted, who've been crushed by pain, by words, by abuse, Lord. I'm asking, Father, that you just bandage their sweet little hearts and that you bring comfort and healing, Lord. Lord, I'm asking for eyes to be opened in Jesus' name recovery of sight, Lord God, for, for people who are blind to your truth, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that you'd open up your word to them and they would begin to see like they've never seen before. That their eyes would be able to see truth and comprehend truth, Lord God. And that truth, Lord God, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. I pray, Lord God, that the truth would set them free tonight in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, Come now and minister to you people. Breathe new life, Lord God, into every heart here. Soften hardened hearts, Lord God. 
take us into the deeper things of God. I pray not ankle deep. I pray not knee deep. Lord, we want to go in over our head with you. Lead us, Lord, in the way that leads to life, I pray in Jesus' name.